The Old Testament reading for this, the second Sunday after Pentecost, which serves as the text for our sermon this morning, comes from the prophet Isaiah, the 65th chapter. I was ready to be sought by those who did not ask for me. I was ready to be found by those who did not seek me. I said, here am I, here am I, to a nation that was not called by my name. I spread out my hands all the day to a rebellious people who walk in a way that is not good, following their own devices, a people who provoke me to my face continually, sacrificing in gardens and making offerings on bricks, who sit in tombs and spend the night in secret places, who eat pig's flesh, and broth of tainted meat is in their vessels, who say, Keep to yourself, do not come near me, for I am too holy for you. These are a smoke in my nostrils, a fire that burns all the day. Behold, it is written before me, I will not keep silent, but I will repay. I will indeed repay into their bosom both your iniquities and your father's iniquities together, says the Lord, because they made offerings on the mountains and insulted me on the hills. I will measure into their bosom payment for their former deeds. Thus says the Lord, as the new wine is found in the cluster, and they say, do not destroy it, for there is a blessing in it. So I will do for my servant's sake, and not destroy them all. I will bring forth offspring from Jacob and from Judah, possessors of my mountains. My chosen shall possess it, and my servants shall dwell there. This is the word of the Lord. The word is near you, in your mouth and in your heart. For with the heart one believes and is justified, and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. The epistle reading comes from Paul's letter to the church in Galatia, the third and fourth chapters. Now before faith came, we were held captive under the law, imprisoned until the coming faith would be revealed. So then the law was our guardian until Christ came, in order that we might be justified by faith. But now that faith has come, we are no longer under a guardian. For in Christ Jesus, you are all sons of God through faith. For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither slave nor free, there is neither male nor female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you are Christ's, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to promise. I mean that the heir, as long as he is a child, is no different from a slave, though he is the owner of everything. But he is under guardians and managers until the date set by his father. In the same way, we also, when we were children, were enslaved to the elementary principles of the world. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. And because you are sons, God has sent the spirit of his Son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. So you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. This is the word of the Lord. The Holy Gospel comes to us according to St. Luke, the 8th chapter. Then they sailed to the country of the Gerasenes, which is opposite Galilee. 
When Jesus had stepped out on land, there met him a man from the city who had demons. For a long time he had worn no clothes, and he had not lived in a house but among the tombs. When he saw Jesus, he cried out and fell down before him and said with a loud voice, What have you to do with me, Jesus, Son of the Most High God? I beg you, do not torment me. For he had commanded the unclean spirit to come out of the man. For many a time it had seized him. He was kept under guard and bound with chains and shackles, but he would break the bonds and be driven by the demon into the desert. Jesus then asked him, What is your name? And he said, Legion, for many demons had entered him. And they begged him not to command them to depart into the abyss. Now a large herd of pigs was feeding there on the hillside, and they begged him to let them enter these. So he gave them permission. Then the demons came out of the man and entered the pigs, and the herd rushed down the steep bank into the lake and were drowned. When the herdsmen saw what had happened, they fled and told it in the city and in the country. Then people went out to see what had happened, and they came to Jesus and found the man from whom the demons had gone, sitting at the feet of Jesus, clothed and in his right mind. And they were afraid. And those who had seen it told them how the demon-possessed man had been healed. Then all the people of the surrounding country of the Gerasenes asked him to depart from them, for they were seized with great fear. So he got into the boat and returned. The man from whom the demons had gone begged that he might be with him. But Jesus sent him away, saying, Return to your home, and declare how much God has done for you. And he went away, proclaiming throughout the whole city how much Jesus had done for him. And this is the Gospel of our Lord. Grace to you, Lord Grace, mercy, and peace to you from God our Father, and from our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. Have you ever heard churches use the phrase, God is still speaking? I mean, it sounds good, doesn't it? It sounds like they're saying, this is a place to hear the word of God proclaimed. But sadly, it usually means the exact opposite of that. Many churches who use that phrase mean that God's word is not absolute. It's not authoritative, and it's certainly not final. They hold to the deeply unscriptural notion that God speaks through our culture. And that what our culture loves, God loves too. And that God's law changes as our society changes. And let's face it, that is a pretty appealing message. It makes being a Christian really, really easy. Because you just have to be a cheerleader for whatever is popular in the world. Homosexuality is praised by the world, so God's people should praise it too, they say. Pedophilia is trying to be normalized, so the church should get behind that as well. Drunkenness, divorce, open marriages, murdering children, satanic rituals, whatever the world is into, rah, 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 sis, boom, bah. We can embrace it all, still be a Christian if you buy into that heresy that is promoted by the phrase, God is still speaking. You will never be hated. You'll never be looked down upon because you will always be in the majority. You will always be going right along with our culture and you can move your goalposts just as often as the world does. 
It's easy, it's non-confrontational, and it looks ever so loving. So it must be true, right? See, we want God to be like too many politicians are. Wishy-washy, malleable, never taking a real stance on something for fear of offending people and losing popularity. We want him to change his stance on things depending on what's popular, what group he's talking to, and especially what we want to hear. We want him to cater to our desires and our whims. We want him to approve everything that we like to do, and we want him to walk back any comments or commandments that offend us or we find difficult to bear so that we can keep on supporting him and putting his signs up in our yard. Here's the problem for that line of thought, though. Unlike politicians, God is not an office by popular vote. He is God, whether you like it or not, whether you believe it or not. He does not need to kowtow to man's desires and the ever-changing winds of our culture. He created this world. He is the beginning and the end, and his word, not our feelings, establishes what is true what is right, and what is evil. Despite what we may want to believe, despite what too many churches claim, his position is firm, absolute, eternal, and unchanging. And the Bible is very, very clear on what God's stance is about sin. God hates sin. God loathes sin. And sin has consequences. You know, so often we think of God as just a kindly old man with a long white beard, like a doddering old uncle maybe, who looks with fondness on this world of sin and wrath and wrings his hands and just goes, oh dear, oh dear, they're at it again. That's not God. God is not powerless. And he does not turn a blind eye to sin. He says through the prophet Isaiah in our Old Testament reading that the brazen sinners are like a smoke in my nostrils, a fire that burns all the day. Behold, it is written before me, I will not keep silent, but I will repay. I will indeed repay into their bosom both your iniquities and your father's iniquities together, says the Lord. Because they made offerings on the mountains and insulted me on the hills, I will measure into their bosom payment for their former deeds. That's not wishy-washy at all, is it? Here and all throughout the Bible, God makes it very clear that he despises sin and that he will pour out his wrath upon all that he has declared to be evil and wrong. He will cleanse it from his creation. He will remove it from his presence and he will righteously condemn it to hell. Now, before you start getting too smug and thinking of all those wretched sinners in your life that you can't wait to see get their comeuppance from God, understand that this is God's stance on all sin. And you, my friend, have sinned. You have taken God's holy, precious name in vain and treated it like trash. You have hated your neighbor and hoped to see them suffer in one way or another. You have stolen, you have cheated, you have worked the system to your benefit. You have coveted what others have, you have lusted after others, you have lied and you have gossiped about others. 
Your life is not the squeaky clean veneer that you present to the world. In your heart, in your mind, in your actions, you sin deeply and daily. You despise God's word and you chase after the ways of the world. You let your anger take hold of you. You self-righteously think that you are better than others. You treat God as an afterthought, and you wish that you weren't held back by all his silly rules. You have sinned. You will continue to sin, and you are sinning right now. So am I, and so is everyone in this world. When we hear God's word that condemns sin, it should cut us to the bone. Because he's not talking about them out there. He is speaking to you and to me and saying you have sinned and deserve wrath. With all the sin in our lives, we should be grieved and honestly terrified. Because God's word is absolutely and painfully clear. God hates sin. He abhors it. He despises it. He loathes it. It has no place in his holy kingdom, and he will not stand for it to even be in his presence in heaven. Despite what we want to believe, despite what we hope for, God's stance on sin is firm and unyielding. God hates sin. And since his stance on sin is so resolute, Is it any surprise to us that his stance regarding sinners is just as firm? For those people who sin, for those who despise and reject God and his word, for those who are tainted and corrupted with the sin that God so fully hates, God also has a firm and absolute and eternal and unchanging stance. And that stance is love. God loves sinners. He hates sin. He loves sinners. He loves those who are trapped in sin. He loves those who have been waylaid by the devil and brought down into his rebellion and filth. Now don't get me wrong. This does not mean that the universalists are right and that everyone goes to heaven in the end. Those who cling to their sin those who take pride in it, those who utterly reject God's grace and mercy, they make themselves to continue to be sin. Sin becomes their identity, and they place themselves back under God's eternal and righteous wrath. If a bomb is going to explode, and you decide to run back and hold on to that bomb rather than fleeing and evacuating, you and the bomb will share the same fate. Sinners who reject God's grace, who cling to their sin, who refuse the forgiveness that God so graciously gives, they remain bound to their sin and they choose to share the same condemning fate as the sin that God so freely sets them free from. But as cliche as it might sound, God hates the sin, yet loves the sinner. He says in that same passage where he condemns sin and talks about pouring out his righteous wrath on those who sin against him. He also says, I was ready to be sought by those who did not ask for me. I was ready to be found by those who did not seek me. I said, here am I, here am I, to a nation that was not called by my name. 
I spread out my hands all the day to a rebellious people who walk in a way that is not good, following their own devices, a people who provoke me to my face continually. God loves sinners and has mercy upon them despite their sin. Even the most callous, most hideous, most arrogant and blasphemous sinner in the world, God still sees them as his child. He still calls out to them. He still desires for them to repent and turn away from their sins and receive his eternal mercy and love. Out of grace and mercy, God does not wipe out the world as we deserve, but he grants us day after day of grace, opportunity after opportunity for sinners to hear his word, to believe, to repent of their sin, and to receive the eternal benefits of his undeserved love. And what kind of love is it that God has for sinners? Well, it is a perfect and complete and sacrificial love. Just as God's stance on sin is very different from the world's stance, so too is the love that he has for us sinners. It is not a love that is blind and pretends that we have no faults. It is not a love that leaves when it's, getting, when it's not getting something in return anymore. God's love for sinners is so great that he sacrificed everything to set us free from the sin that separated us from him. God humbled himself to take on human form, to be born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were held captive by sin. He suffered the same wicked temptations that we ourselves do at the hands of the devil. He suffered mockery at the hands of those that he had come to save. He suffered betrayal and abandonment. He suffered the excruciating agony of crucifixion. He suffered death itself, sacrificing his perfect, eternal, and holy life as a substitute for us. An atoning sacrifice to pay the price of all of our sin. God did not have to do this. God would have been no less God, no less holy, to simply walk away and leave us to deal with the consequences of our sin. He would have been perfectly justified to do so. But his love for you is so great that he was unwilling to let you suffer in hell for eternity. So he suffered in your place upon the cross, bearing the pains of hell that should have been yours for eternity, bearing God's wrath upon all sin as he took it upon himself. And then, on the third day, that first Easter morning, Jesus Christ shattered the chains of death and rose again from the tomb, giving the world not just hope, but the absolute guarantee that all who look to him in faith will rise from the grave just as he did, will rise to new life, to eternal life in his holy, sinless kingdom of heaven. All this he did out of love for you. And all this he did while we were still his enemies. Because sin had corrupted us so completely, we are by nature blind, dead, and enemies of God. But by the blood of Jesus Christ, we are cleansed completely of that sin. 
Like the man who was demon-possessed in our gospel reading today. When Jesus Christ spoke, his word drove out the demons and the man was changed completely. The old ways, the evil, the wicked, the dangerous things that he had done were driven from him. By the blood of Christ, we are made a new creation. We are given a new nature that recognizes how awful sin is and, does, and we don't want to be enslaved to it. Now, that doesn't mean that we're perfect. It doesn't mean that a real Christian will never sin again. We still have our sinful nature. The old Adam is still within us, driving us to do wretched, awful, despicable things. But we recognize those things. We repent of those things. We confess those things with humility and shame before God. Not saying, I'm proud of what I've done, but saying, Lord, I am a sinner. Take this guilt from me. And he does. We are not just shown the path to freedom and then told to walk it well. We are set free from sin, death, and hell as our guilt is paid in full by the blood of Jesus Christ and our sin is removed from us as far as the east is from the west. We are set free by grace through faith. Brothers and sisters, make no mistake about God's stance on sin. He hates it. All that he has proclaimed to be wrong and evil and against his will, it is still sinful and loathsome. God despises sin. He drives it from his presence and he pours out his eternal righteous wrath upon it and all those who choose to cling to it, to love it, to remain slaves to it. God hates sin. And when he returns again in glory, all sin will be wiped away into eternal condemnation. But for those who repent, for those who look to him in faith, for those who acknowledge their sin and recognize their desperate need for a Savior, despite his unyielding hatred of sin, God loves sinners. He calls out to them through his word, through the church, through each and every one of his Christian children, proclaiming to the entire world the glorious gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. You need not perish with your sin. You need not be enslaved by it. You need not suffer the eternal fires of hell because God has paid your penalty in full with the atoning blood of Jesus Christ. Freedom, salvation, and eternal life in paradise are freely given to sinners like us because of God's sacrificial love. Hear him call. Here am I. Here am I. Even though we do not seek him. Heed his word of law that condemns sin and shows its disastrous consequences. But more so, hear his word of gospel that brings life and salvation even to rebellious sinners like us. For by the cross of Jesus Christ alone, by his empty tomb alone, you are forgiven of every one of your sins, and eternal life in heaven is yours. Thanks be to God. Amen.